This podcast was recorded on February 6th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. We have here with me today our co-host, Mr. Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have returning champion, Pete Cicchini from Cantor Fitzgerald. He serves as the global chief market strategist, and he reminded me that he's also an all-around good guy as well. So welcome back, Pete. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Yeah. Returning yeah. champion, actually. You are a boxer too, right? Uh, if I yes, remember, recall yes, correctly. Yes, right? however, so, I, I, I happened to lose that championship belt, yeah, but it was well fought. But they still call anybody who ever won the title champ. Right. I mean, that's one thing you, you always true. hear champ. So, um, you know, the, the I appreciate the vitamins and the training. You'll be back in, <laughs> you know, so uh, that's my whole Kogan. So, Pete, you came on the episode last year, kind of nailed a lot of the market calls. I want to let you take a victory lap there, too. I appreciate it. Because uh, you guys put out some good research. You talked about the Fed. Uh, I think late last year, you were talking about the Fed's going to have to actually back off of the rate hikes and one of the few firms out there calling for zero hikes in 19. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of give us the thinking behind that, how you guys uh, came up with that? And then again, uh, it looks like you're going to be correct given what Powell's done thus far, although we've got seven more meetings to go. Yes. Well, you know, we we had obviously been focusing on the, the much tighter financial conditions, both in the US and globally. And I was surprised in the December meeting, especially on the heels of the ECB on December 13th, ending QE, I was a bit surprised that Chairman Powell came out as hardline, if you will, regarding what their plan was for the balance sheet. If you recall, he used language like the reduction of the balance sheet was on autopilot and that they were comfortable with that. So it sounded a little bit intransigent to me. And I thought, you know, frankly, that it was a bit of a miscommunication given the headwinds that I saw in the rest of the world. And so while we had been cautious in the second half of the year because of global financial conditions tightening, I certainly didn't expect, you know, this swoon below 2,500 to 2,350 that we got on Christmas Eve day. Well, I think some of that, if I, if I had to put blame on yeah. someone, I think uh, Mr. Mnuchin coming out and saying, hey, by the way, I talked to all the banks, CFOs and CEOs, and they're all solvent. Yeah. Nothing to worry about here. I think when you hear that, usually that's just a sign of bankruptcy, right? Yes. That, historically. That, that was another bit of a faux pas, I think, on the part of policymakers. But, but I think I think, you know, once that occurred and it became very clear that financial markets couldn't tolerate that sort of positioning and body language from the Fed, it was our view that they would have to soften that. And I think that they have pivoted. And I think, you know, not much longer thereafter, they came out and they started marching out. Uh, Powell himself came out at the Economic uh, Association of Economic Association in New York and said, you know, look, we're, we're going to be a little bit more sensitive to financial conditions and the markets effectively is what he said. And then there's been a parade of, of, of Fed governors coming out since then. I think the big issue, though, for, for me is that we're sort of at this intersection of both a cyclical change in monetary policy and a secular one. Okay. Maybe and you could decompose those two pieces. I'll do my best. I, I think we, we tried to do this in our 2019 outlook. And what I meant by that was that in, in 1980, you know, Volcker raised rates aggressively to combat the stagflation of the 1970s. And he did so very successfully. And what that did was it set the stage really for almost four decades of falling rates, whether you look at long or short rates. 
And that effectively ended in 2016 when we came off the zero bound. So not only does the Fed find itself in a situation where it's raising rates as a part of the normal economic cycle, but it's also raising it off the zero bound, sort of marking the end of this secular trend. So now the Fed finds itself really with only two and a half points of room to cut, whereas average cutting in cycles is about five and a half to six percent. And the rest of the world is slowing and other things are going wrong, at least in my view, globally, that the Fed may have to look after in a real way. It's going to be difficult for them to do it. You you mentioned that. So let's talk about the slowing in Europe and let's focus on the ECB here. So I would say the Fed has the luxury of being able to cut two and a half percent at this point. What would the ECB do at this point if we indeed face like a decent or a deep somewhat recession? Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of data out there that talks about interest rate cuts this cycle, and they they usually are, you know, between four and six percent. Does the ECB go to negative four? I personally don't think they can actually get there because I think the the financial system revolts at that point. Uh, when, When you actually ask people to take these hits on the rates, because a lot of folks in the Eurozone actually don't have to pay the bank to keep their money there. They're subsidizing it up to certain asset levels, yes. right? So what happens in that instance? Well, I think that question is exactly the right question to be asking, especially because Italy has 300 billion euros of maturing debt this year. Spain has 200 billion and there's no QE. So where does that leave things in who's a situation? Who's going to buy it? And it leaves a, a situation in which recession is now occurring in Italy, which is something we wrote about in November. We thought their growth would slow considerably. So I think many countries in the Eurozone are going to run over their 3% deficit to GDP targets, which are required by the by the EU. And so there's going to be quite a bit of continued conflict and conflagration with Brussels over this. And so what, what does the ECB do? Well, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I think the Italian auctions we've seen so far this year have gone okay is because the banks are taking a lot of those securities. But the banks can't do that forever. Their balance sheets are not bulletproof, certainly. And so I do think the ECB is going to have to reinstate TLTRO Mm -hmm. in one form or other and a modified version. Explain to our listeners what that is. A lot of people don't follow all the ECB policies. Yeah. In broad brushstrokes, it is a program that allows uh, the ECB to provide liquidity to banks and the bank are then in turn required to lend into the real economy. So it's actually not really a bailout program. So this version of TLTRO, the one I'm suggesting, would actually need to be modified at some point to allow them to use that liquidity to actually purchase those bonds. I think it's interesting you mentioned the kind of the rule between Brussels and the negotiation crosses. There's a limit on the what fiscal deficit you can run and you mentioned the 3% number. I find that interesting because in the US, we're running roughly four and a half according to official numbers. And you know, if you kind of take the current run rate, it, it looks like we're maybe closer to eight here in this right. country. And so do you think maybe the next round just says, okay, they're going to cover their ears, cover their eyes, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, and just let people actually have fiscal stimulus in their own sovereign entities? That's the other way around the problem. Yeah. Because obviously there is no unified fiscal policy in the Eurozone, but this is one way by removing austerity that by sort of the negation of austerity that you get fiscal stimulus. And so I think that's ultimately in the cards as well. And we've talked a bit about that, but I want to see how things evolve into this year. And I do believe that a good portion of the Eurozone, unfortunately, by early 2020 will likely be in contraction. So let me come back to the Fed because I listened to uh, Chairman Powell at his press conference and I watched him up there and, you know, I think he got good marks. A lot of people gave him, you know, an A on the report, A minus for the critics out there. But I thought what was very interesting is that 
All he did was say, we're going to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? And I'm referring to the Fed's balance sheet here. So he didn't say that we're reducing it, we're going to reinvest some proceeds, we're doing this. Over the next few meetings, it's going to be a discussion point. And so was it just some of that, you know, Fed speak and magic to try to talk up the markets with actually having no action? Is it Draghi-esque of the whatever it takes type of thing? And really, do you believe that the chairman is actually going to pull back some of this? Because Right now, to me, it actually looks like it is on autopilot still, right? Only difference was it's like, oh, it's a discussion point. So what's your take on that? I'll try to unpack that a little bit. I think there are two things. If you remember around that same period of time, there are also about a half dozen articles in various media outlets. And the Wall Street Journal had a couple articles uh, over the weekend and then on a Monday around how the Fed was unlikely to shrink the balance sheet as much as market participants thought. And actually what's interesting about it is if you actually look at the balance sheet reductions, they're not at 50. They're not at 50. Right. They can't get it because they don't have enough tre- treasuries maturing. Right? That's correct. And they're super, probably somewhere between 35 and 45 and they're higher. And I think the last number I saw was cumulative. It's been about 409 billion. I, that's our number yeah. as well. Yeah. That's about right. So it's actually a little bit less than I think the market thinks it's been. But the issue is obviously on a go forward. How much are they going to do? And I don't think they're going to be able to do all that much more. And and interestingly, and I've had conversations with a lot of folks who are really in the know about this, and it actually hasn't given me any answers, quite frankly. But but the interesting thing is that the reserves in the banking system have actually fallen from about two and a half trillion to about a trillion and a half which is obviously larger than the diminution of the balance sheet. And I think that's actually been largely responsible for the tighter financial conditions as well. And I'm as, as much as I focus on that math and try to figure out how those two pieces square or foot to one another, it's actually, it's actually yeah, difficult yeah. to understand how it fits. Yeah, I, I've had trouble. I've tried to back into it as well and just haven't been unable to do so. Yeah. But I will give Powell credit for that, though, he did address the reserves, yes. right? And he said that, you know, they have some estimate of it. So at least he admits they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're, we're not missing the math here. It's just maybe it's hard to get your finger on And I on think it. it is. Yeah. But also he talked about then having some cushion there. And so, you know, I think when Yellen put it out originally, it's like, we're going to shrink the balance sheet to two and a half trillion. Then the market said, no way. People thrown around three and a half trillion. Here we have four trillion and wondering, can it move further? Well, I think the other interesting thing about this is, is I think if you look at the history of, of new Fed chairs, you actually see this acclimation period during which they actually realize how people hang on their every word. And I think we, we, we've seen it. We, so we saw it with Bernanke, we saw it with Chair Yellen, and now we've seen it with, with Chairman Powell. And I think that's also part of what we're working through here. And, and I, I really think it is a bit of a heuristic process, frankly, for, for Fed chairmen when they come in and they're new to understand exactly what they say and how they need to say it. And obviously, they're very astute and they do understand that what they say matters to the markets. But in particular right now, quantitative tapering is a very tricky thing to understand how to communicate. Well, it's never been done in the history of QE, right? So, I mean, the Japanese you know, have done QE for many decades, but they've never tried this unwind, right? And I think that's, that's the thing is that unprecedented policies, I mean, you, can, you don't know how to anticipate them. And so uh, I'm not concerned that Powell is talking about he wants to get it done because they want to be able to have the coffers to do it again if need be. But I think you, you kind of see the playbook, what it looks like when you look at Japan, look at the ECB, is the next time we do it, we're not going to buy mortgages, we're going to buy corporate bonds, right? And so you're going to backstop the economy, but it's going to be painful in between here and there to rely on that, what people call the put, right? Yeah. And well, not to get too philosophical about it, but if we take this progression to its extreme, its potential extreme, then you have all major central banks globally QEing and buying all assets 
of the utmost duration, which is obviously equities sure. at the end of the day. And that prospect is really kind of an, it's an odd thing to contemplate. What does that mean for the functioning of capital markets and the pricing of risk? It means that there isn't it's, one. it's exactly what it means. Maybe so, that's why we're all going to indexing in this world, right? <laughs> because there'll be no differentiation of capital because the central banks wanted to put that. No. That was an extreme thought, but yes, yes, I hope for both of our sakes that doesn't happen. Doesn't help us in capital markets. So, so one more thing, then we'll get into the capital markets. Is you know, there's been this uh, propagation of the modern monetary theory, and I and I love these economic thoughts. How you just slap the word theory at the end, and all of a sudden it's truthful and all this stuff. And the whole idea here comes. It harkens back to what Reagan told us in the early '80s. And you talked about Volcker, but the deficits don't matter. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some papers about this where it's like, okay, yeah, if your growth rate is greater than the ultimate coupon you're paying, then you get your way out of it. But that's true if you don't grow the deficit. What's your take on this whole idea of MMT and you know it, it kind of permeating the, the subculture out here? And isn't it more popular because of QE and knowing there's this backstop that, hey, the banks can buy it at the end of the day, the central banks it is. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a big reason why deficits don't matter. If there's a buyer of that, of the debt that's being issued, then it doesn't matter. But in fact, I think we're at a point, and I don't know if it's some sort of a unique tipping point. It probably isn't, quite frankly, because we always seem to think we're at this unique tipping point, and we never really are. It makes for a good conversation, but it never happens. So I don't want to overstate overstate it. But I but I do think we're at a point now where we're running trillion dollar deficits. And, and look, the issue I there know is- I know we are, actually. I've seen the data. We are running- We are. Like, yeah, we right. are. And in good and purported good times, don't forget. Correct. But that's the issue, right? So there's really no go forward plan not to run them. If, if, there were, if we were doing it for a reason that made a lot of sense, if we were not in expansion, you know, if we were using it for the classical reasons to use it, well, then fine. Okay, but but how how long can we run them? And I think with the amount of bill issuance that we have and our thought process around that is probably around 250 to 300 net in the first quarter. And we saw that happen last year and it actually did end up dislocating LIBOR OIS, for example, blew out. We've we've you know, we saw LIBOR uh, rise precipitously. And, you know, one of the themes that runs through our work is that that actually does matter and short funding costs actually do matter because there's just so much variable rate debt outstanding in the system right now through commercial industrial loans. Yeah. So before we jump on the CNI stuff, because I think it's very important sure. to get to, because I, I don't know if a lot of people follow the, the loan market like that, but we're talking about deficits. We're talking about just how large they are. And again, a percent of GDP, because that's what you have to equilibrate because yeah. the economy is expanding. In fact, I still think our deficit grew like 2x what GDP has grown in this in this since the financial crisis, right? I think it's, that's doubling. But the question is, what does that have impact on the rates market? How do you think about treasury rates today, where we are? We've seen a huge rally in risk, you know, off the bottoms. You, you mentioned Christmas Eve. Uh, as we record today, about 80, 85% of the retracements taken place thus far. But rates haven't really moved significantly over that period. In fact, they're almost where they were on Christmas yes. Eve. What do you think about that? Yes. What do you think the next direction in rates are in the short term, medium term, whatever you want to think about it? Well, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and I'm going to twist it a little bit, right. you know, as we often do. But Answer but, the question you want to answer, not that, the one asked. It's right. Fine. But but it, but it does answer the right. one asked as well as I think touch on an important point, which is that a lot of people will say that QT doesn't matter, that it doesn't have the same effect that QE does because, well, look at rates. They haven't moved. But what I would say is this. When I talked about that secular intersection with the cyclical, what I was really talking about is if you recall in October, 
the 10 year actually went to 326. Yep. And within intraday. weeks, intraday, and within weeks, within a week, maybe two, the equity market risked off. And if you go back and you look at that historically, where you have a similar intersection of the secular trend with the cycle in interest rates at that particular time in the economic cycle, you get a risk off. And it's very Wasn't interesting. It 2013, right? We, Roughly we, at the 3% we did the taper. Yes, right? we got, well, we, we got one. We really got one actually in 07, in uh, 2000. They really happen pretty much every time there's a risk off in equity. Going all the way back, we did it all the way back to, I think, 1970. So that wasn't my secular. That's the problem with 13. It was just more secular. Yes, right, right. It was. Um, but, but my point is that you then have this, you know, George Soros uses this wonderful word that everyone overuses now called re, you know, reflexivity, which he wrote about in The Alchemy of Finance, which was one of the first finance, finance books I ever read, which got me hooked. And, and really, I think what happened was when we had the risk off in equities, that's when we started to see a flight to safety back to the long end of the US curve. That's what knocked rates down. So we would agree with you. Yeah. I mean, that you, you can say that rates are no higher than they were, but that if you say that, you're ignoring the path that they took to get back to where they were. And I also noticed that there was something pivotal about three, the three and a quarter. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that we could probably touch three and a quarter again on the 10 year and not have as much of an impact, but the three and a half is the next one. Right? I think that's, that's, that's that feels, feels right to me as well. Yeah. So the question becomes, do we see the three and a half in the cycle or, or does the rest of the world pull us down? And, or what do you think? I, I don't think we get there. And, and, and the reason for that is, whereas I think a lot of the risk off that we saw in 2018, starting with emerging markets, had to do with either the first or second order effects of, of higher rates, either on the short end or later in the year on the long end. So early in the year, it was short end, short rates, especially in emerging markets. And then later in the year, I believe it was long end. Uh, we mentioned that 326. The rest of the world now is starting to feel the effects with a lag of higher rates that started you know, several years ago now, but really kind of accelerated in 17 into 18. And so what I think takes over from the first order effect of rates on risk is that second order effect, which is that global fundamentals are actually starting to slow now, whether you're talking about China or other parts of the emerging world, or whether you're talking about Europe, uh, you know, France has PMIs that are now in contraction. Italy now in contraction. Germany, Germany. Yeah. Germany. Industrial production in Germany has was led that. Yeah. It's probably not going to be good to slap tariffs on them next uh, in the month of March, right? Which is being proposed by yes. our administration now that they're yes. going to put tariffs on uh, European autos. Mm -hmm. I, that's a big slap in the face of Germany, right? I, I can't imagine that's actually going to happen. I, I, I think. Now, I mean, that would be a catalyst for definitely a big, big slowdown, if not a recession. I agree. And, and in fact, I think we get, you know, one of the reasons why I felt we'd get a rally off that low in December was because I thought we'd get the communication pivot, if not an actual pivot, communication pivot from central banks, especially the Fed, uh, but also some sort of a trade deal with China, at least something that's optically pleasing, albeit I think it's going to be toothless no matter what happens because sure. there's it's a complex set of problems to solve. And then, you know, at, and you're not going to solve IP issues no, either in not. a month or two or no. even a year or two. It's going to take a long period of time. Yeah. And, and look, there are sovereignty issues and geopolitical dominance issues around the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands and all these things are very complex and certainly can't be discussed in a public way around what the trade-offs and the chits were in the negotiation. So I think they're just going to be ignored for now and dealt with later. Okay, so rates maybe push a little bit higher here. We've had this risk rally. You kind of nailed it, as I said, following your pieces out there you, you guys put out. What do you do today? Five weeks into the year, big risk rally. 
Rates haven't budged a lot. Spreads yeah. have tightened in on almost every spread product out there. What's the next leg of this trade? I think the hardest thing about being a mar market participant is, is understanding when one should be focused on price, when one should be focused on time, and when one should be focused on a combination of the two, right? <laughs> and you're <laughs> and not supposed to ever forecast that third one. Exa right? Exactly. Right. So it's not a punt. I, I think between our call since since the you know late, late December, early January was 27 to 2800 on the S&P, just to use S&P as a proxy for risk assets. And there were a number of reasons for that, some technical, some momentum-based, valuation-based. I think that's a fully valued S&P based on where we think earnings are going. We think earnings will likely be flattish, maybe up a touch. Consensus is 173. We're 160 to 165. Yeah, I mean, you got higher borrowing costs, higher input costs from labor, yes. inflationary costs if you're stuck in a tariff yes. um, production. I mean, it's going to be tough. I agree. And, and also, if we're right about how the credit markets are going to sort of evolve through the year, you know, if you think about just now, I don't think the 10-year will be at three. I think, let's say, let's say, say two and a half, just to make the math a little easier. And then you have an equity risk premium of three and a half if it's two and a half to three, whatever. So you've got essentially you know, one over the risk-free rate plus the risk-adjusted rate is the, you know, the earnings yield, if you will. And that gives you about a 15 and a half multiple. And if you look at 15 or 15, easy math, 15 times 160, that's 2,400. So I think that's sort of, that's actually where my, my outlook forecast for S&P is for the end of the year. So rally to 2,800, which is a big, big resistance level, right? Big resistance level. Is there technicals how we get to that resistance there? Right? Yes, correct. And that's where volume at present is a lot of volume at that level. And we, and we bumped up against it three times last year. And then you look at the valuation and lots of other things. And I think that makes an awful lot of sense. But you know, sometimes these things go a little bit longer than you think because it does take large asset allocators time to allocate into the year. And so that's where the time aspect of it comes in. Do sure. we do we kind of waffle around here at 20 said retest 2700 and then rip higher to 28? That's certainly a possibility. But at the end of the day, I think risk generally speaking correlates lower on the on global fundamentals that start to slow into the second half of the year. So a couple of darlings in the bond market for the last few years have been, you know, especially since the commodity recession we had back in 15, early 16, um, have been high yield bonds as mm -hmm. well as bank loans. Uh, <clears throat> what do you think about that? We, and we can segue into your kind of lending side on the CNI. But what do you think about kind of those type of products too, which have been relatively immune? Duration has kind of, they're immune to duration. Mm -hmm. I mean, high yield does still have some, but what do you think about spreads and the compensation yeah. people are getting there? Yeah, high yield, especially HYG, really is a spread product, not a duration product anymore. It's much shorter than you actually think or than, than is yeah, advertised. Right. We, we, we know this. When CDX high yield, just I think just use that as an easily monitored proxy for where the high yield market spreads are, was it about, let's call it yeah, 290-ish at the beginning of 2018. And we came out in our outlook and said, you know, look, we think we're late cycle. 18 is probably not the it year for risk off, but we could see spreads 390 and you know when we went around and we talked to clients about that they it almost blew their heads off they were very surprised that we would have that view now of course it went even further than that uh, in the last couple of weeks you know to four, i think we went into about 480 and change yeah, it got almost to 500 yeah, yeah i don't think we went through 500 i don't think we did and now look we're now we're back at 350 and i think uh, one of my highest conviction thoughts around 2019 is that if we dip down below 350 for any prolonged period of time, if we touch 325, not that there's anything magic about 325. I think the default rate that 325 
implies is way too low versus the forward default rate we're going to start to experience in and late 19, early 20. And CDX is a five-year product, right? That's so correct. That's how you're thinking about yes, it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. okay. That doesn't paint a great picture as an asset allocator, right? You're saying that limited upside left in some of this looks like some potential downside. So would it be fair to categorize this last six weeks or so as a bear market rally? Or is it just that asset prices are catching up with the global story? How do you paint that picture uh, and trying to put a nice little bow on the package? I, I think for the actually for the very first time in a recent note, we call it a bear market rally. I do think that's what it is. Uh, Which are vicious at times, right? For, yeah, they're vicious, those, yeah. and they and they're notorious uh, face ripper offers. Right, because uh, you, you, you face ripper <laughs> offer. We, we have used that phrase around here before. Um, I think I, I may have got it from you, but uh, <laughs> no, I don't but, think so. But, but definitely, they bounce, and and yeah. you you get whipsawed. Right, yeah. it's usually what happens because you're saying it's so painful to sit in the silence and watch it, mm-hmm. um, and then you get in right at the wrong time. Right, I think I think that's right, and I think a lot of people will be caught chasing that risk, uh, thinking perhaps they got it wrong at the end of December, which in fact, I think many people did. They were overly cautious. So I think it was a bear market rally. It is a bear market rally uh, that ought to be faded, but faded with caution because of that face ripper offer effect. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of the face ripper offers, so what does this do to the dollar? You know, I mean, the Fed backs off. We've seen stabilization. We've been surprised to see the stabilization, though. I think you and I have been a little competing camp here. Yes. We still think that the, you know, there is some policy things that will change with the dollar. But what's your stance on the dollar? And and does this mean that people should be kind of avoiding EM? I mean, EM's been a darling from a lot of folks. Valuation is much more attractive there than really, you know, and there's not as many problems you could say today than there is in the eurozone. Yeah. Right. So what's what's kind of the view on the dollar and how do you get there? Well, I'm glad you, you waited to ask me that question while my jet lag was sort of wearing off a little because, <laughs> <laughs> because the dollar question and the dollar call in our outlook for me was the hardest. And we do similar analysis around rate differentials. And we're always looking at what the rate diffs are, not just nominally, but on a fully currency hedge basis. There are various ways you can hedge them short, three month forward, roll, match duration. It matters a lot, actually, depending on the steepness of the forward curve. But you know, beginning of last year, and the worst is really the roll in the front end, right? That's the three, exactly three month right. roll just kills kills, kills you. So, and then actually, the curve was so steep at one point, the three month roll was actually a better way to do it for a little period of time, based on our model anyway. But that's kind of esoteric, neither here nor there. But last year, we thought rate differentials matter the most. Dollar is too weak; it's weak for temporary reasons, and the dollar, in fact, did rally right into our DXY, rallied into our target range of ninety five to seven. Now this year. Here I am kind of saying some very bearish things around risk assets, yet I'm saying that it's not going to come directly from rates and therefore not directly from currencies. So here I'm making this odd kind of assessment that I think the dollar is actually going to remain relatively strong, but it's not going to be much stronger. I don't think it's going to be the factor that companies can turn to and say, oh, the move in the dollar hurt us this year. It's not going to be the dollar impact today, it's going to be the move in the dollar from last year, along with the move in rates, which has already bled into the into the real economy. So our view on the dollar right now really is that's not the catalyst for EM vol, nor, nor our rates. And the dollar will be relatively stable in a range. Again, seemingly odd, but I think the offsetting factors are enough. They're, they're pushing, going to push and pull on each other enough this year to kind of keep it range bound. We've been using that phrase for a while, the push, push, push and pull. pull me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. One of the things that uh, I mean, I guess, is clear through this discussion is this, the impact of debt. Debt supporting the markets, debt supporting the economy. One of the things that you've been talking about in your notes recently is just the 
perhaps the canary in the coal mine, you know, one of the indications for you for something bad, perhaps around the corner is just the tightening of light lending standards. And we've been dancing around a little bit today around the CNI, but mm-hmm. if you can just explain a little bit on your thought process around that. And define it. Define it. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I will. So we're, just, we're a little wonky today for most of our audience. So, yeah. But yes. it's good. I mean, uh, that's, that's why I'm excited. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we, we talked about a number of factors that, that have led to my sort of cautious stance. The housing market's in there too. I don't know if we're going to have time to touch we it. We will get there. Yeah, yeah we will we're definitely not. get there. Um, but but so C and I lending is just certain, just a, a commercial and industrial lending, and it can be the most basic commercial and industrial lending, or it can be levered loans to fund M and A activity, leveraged buyouts. It, it captures everything. And what's complicated it more recently is that commercial industry and lending used to be very simple. It used to just be a bank lending to a commercial or industrial buyer. Now though, the shadow banking system, which is just kind of a kind of a silly phrase really, but but it's BDCs and alternative lenders. We all know who they are without naming names and they're a very important part of the lending market right now, especially to middle market companies that banks might not love. And middle market just do on the size of the company, correct? And so what we have seen is tremendous growth in commercial and industrial loan growth even for this point in the cycle. And we have a little graph that we like to show. It's sort of a visual thing. It's a little harder to speak to. It's one of those things where a picture is worth a thousand words. And since this is a podcast, that makes it tough. But what you see is that at $2 trillion, just about outstanding in commercial and industrial loans, uh, that is about, let's call it two standard deviations above what you would expect even at a cycle peak. Over the historical trend. Over the historical trend mean. See, uh, we refer to that as the squiggly line chart, affectionately yeah. here in the at yeah. double line. Yeah, the problem we is we, we, we can't uh, describe the squiggly, squiggly line. Lines. Squiggly um, lines. Imagine a line and it gets squiggly. There's a lot of squiggly <laughs> lines on that chart that yeah. we use. But I, I think nonetheless, it, it really is a very simple concept, which is that that creates fragility in the system. And a lot of the growth we've been seeing in corporate America, both in profits and, 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 in, and, in, and in the real economy and GDP, comes from the access to credit that corporations have had through the banks. And so is it fair to say that your concern there is that the competition with this shadow banking or just alternative lending, not directly from banks, is that in order to continue to deliver the IRRs and the yield targets, they have to get aggressive in their standards, right? So when they're aggressive in terms of bidding for this stuff, that means that you're loosening the standards of, of the quality of underwriting. I believe that's clearly happened. And even as of September, and when we look at the, the Federal Reserve puts out some data on how aggressive or not aggressive banks are when they lend. And it's uh, that's called their uh, lender officers survey. And that survey basically polls the banks and asks them, are you tightening your lending standards or are you loosening your lending, sta- lending standards to various classes of borrowers? And we're obviously focused on co- large commercial and industrial borrowers here. And that survey was incredibly loose um, at just as of September. And it reversed very hard in December. So the December data just came out yesterday. So this is very fresh. And so we didn't have that for our outlook. And we said in our outlook, look, if this tightens up, this is going to be problematic. And let's not forget, LIBOR is much higher. So as corporations draw on their revolvers, they're not paying 60 basis points of two years ago. They're paying 260. And so it matters. So we think about our listeners out there, look at their credit card statements, variable rates, right? A couple hundred basis points higher, 250 higher due to 
Fed behavior. Yes. So what about the fact that the high yield market has struggled lately in issuance, right? There were some deals that got done back in January. It was closed in December. It's ominous because last time that happened was like DSO 7 or something. People want to draw these parallels. But is it part of the idea that it's just been so much cheaper to do the loan market? Is that part of it? Or am I just looking for a bull market? Or is that just bull market thinking? No. Saying that you're just looking for someone else to do that. And like it has been much cheaper to do floating rate paper than fixed rate coupon, right? Yeah. No, I I think that is a huge part of it. It's so it's competition for loans, which has made banks more willing to lend. So that to some extent has supplanted high yield. And when rates are going up, investors would prefer a variable rate investment because it will hedge them for the duration risks they would take in something that's termed. So reflexivity. Yeah, again, once, once again. Right. And so, no, I think that is a big part of the reason why the high yield market was so lean on issuance for so very long. But the the issue now is if companies are forced to go to high yield, to high yield market, because investors prefer term debt now, because if we're right and the Fed doesn't really move and rates volatility is actually a little bit muted going forward, high yield issuance will likely be preferred because you'll be able to get higher coupon than you would otherwise. And that that's fine, but it's not good for companies. It's good for investors, but it's not good for companies necessarily. So let's go back on that lending standards and probably something that hits closer to folks at home, and pun intended, I guess. Let's talk about the housing market. Mm-hmm. So we've obviously seen sentiment shift in the housing market, uh, probably in the late first quarter, you know, middle of last year. You saw NAHB, which is the National Association Housing Bureau. Home, home Builders. Home, build, home Builders. Yeah, yeah, I don't even know what it is. Who are typically bullish. Yes. Right? That's their job yeah, to be. Absolutely. It's, they're building homes. You've seen that roll over. You've seen a lot of the sentiment indicators within there um, kind of go below trend all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Rates obviously have an impact there. What is your guys' look for housing in the states? And I, I like to think of it as the high income tax states versus the low. I'm just sitting here in California knowing that we're going to get saddled with the bill from last year. Uh, I know you, you suffer too with me. I see the pain on your face. That's yeah. not just the jet lag. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell that's the. No, I mean, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, we got the same problems over there. Yeah. Uh, it sounds it, so good when they do. We, we just can't make those act. <laughs> <laughs> Years of practice. Let's put it this way. To use a double negative. Well, we're not sanguine. Let's put it that way. We're, we're, we're very concerned. We're concerned for a few reasons. And certainly the absence of SALT deductions is, is a big one of those reasons, state and local tax SALT. But also there are real affordability ability issues nationwide, especially in coastal markets, which will be exacerbated by the impact of the tax changes. But also affordability is not what it needs to be for home prices to continue to rise. So we did some work in a piece which you know, I think not everyone does this work the same way, right? As you said, everyone sort of has a little bit of an ax to grind one way or another. We actually, we don't have one. And uh, in fact, we, we really, uh, we have a, a very well-developed real estate business at Canner. And we would love to have housing and commercial real estate booming at all times. It's, it's good for all of us, right? It's good for our businesses. It's good for our personal wealth. You know, it's very hard to be bearish on housing. It is a very personal call for a lot of people. But when it's we a look, lot of people's wealth, right? It, I mean, it is a significant piece of people. It accounts wealth, right? for on leverage because no, most people don't finance the whole, I mean, they finance it and don't just right. pay all cash, right? That equity sliver matters a lot, right? Especially even at an 80, 80% LTV. So what we found really was that affordability 
in U.S. housing is about as bad as it was at the time that Boca raised rates for the first time. And we use a proprietary affordability model. And one of the sort of insights from that work was around inventories. And so we, we performed a lot of fancy modeling around it and regression analyses. And HARP, which is the refinancing program, uh, which allowed people to, who might have been underwater in their mortgages to stay in their homes, actually had the unintended consequence of pulling a lot of inventory out of the market. So there were about 3.4 million homes that were refinanced under the HARP program. And if you think about it, had they think those should have been put back in the marketplace for people who really couldn't afford them. Yeah, I think the easy way to think about it is if HARP had not been there, what would have happened? Well, banks would have likely foreclosed. So about two and a half million were were sort of negative equity situations where the banks could have very easily foreclosed on those homes. Let's just take to be conservative. We could take those and say two and a half million homes. The bank would have foreclosed on the home would have taken it onto real estate owned REO on their balance sheet. And they don't like to have that. So they try to sell that as quickly as possible, usually within six months to a year at most. And that results in inventory and generally speaking, lower price. Moreover, and if the bank hadn't foreclosed, then that person could have sold their home, but they would have actually had to produce cash at the closing to satisfy the mortgage. Like No one wants to do that. So my point is the government essentially subsidized housing for about 3.3 million, 3.4 million people. That took that inventory off the market effectively, which drove prices higher. That's one of the reasons why we've seen existing home prices accelerate in the way that they have. It hasn't been because inventories are light because things are healthy. It's in fact because there's been government intervention, which has affected supply and demand in an unexpected way. And home builders are hesitant to to build the way they used to. And I I think we're at about 1.2 million units on new starts. Does that sound about right? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, the, ballpark. Is it's, it's been about it's, it's been about it's been about three months since we wrote the piece, yeah. so it's a little stale. But I think that's about right. And so and I think we peaked around two point three back in '07, and so we're not going to get back to that. And you can't say that you know prices are too high simply because home builders aren't building enough. Let's not forget it's much harder to get a mortgage now than it used to be. Right. Down payment requirements are much higher. The requirements around documentation. Uh, documentation. I went and I, re- I, I literally, I took out a loan on a home that didn't have a mortgage on it. And it was an incredibly painful process. Could you imagine actually having documentation yeah. to get a mortgage? Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? So Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah. thought? Yeah, negative, negative ammo is no longer yeah. so, exist. So the affordability has been there for a while though, right? Or the lack of affordability. Right. Obviously the higher interest rates, higher yes. mortgage payments, right? Low, low wages, persistently low wage growth. Let's well, say, at least let's just say way. wages less than the house price appreciation. That's correct. Right? So it's hard to relatively speaking. Yeah. Right. So what does that portend for the future in the housing market right now? Well, again, we think- I want to nail you on time and price. Yes, and, you know, yes. Look, the timing, actually, the timing on this is particularly difficult, right? Because this takes a long time. They're to sticky, too, to the downside. They're sticky. They're sticky, right? People don't necessarily have to sell. So if transactions are not, you can see it in volumes. Volume does tend to lead price. That old adage is true in the housing market, largely. And we're starting to see you know, prices come in, especially in some of those markets that we mentioned that are affected by the tax changes. Well, we've seen that locally. I think anecdotally, people speak yeah. uh, on the desk a lot. And anecdotally, we see that where at least the, you know, kind of list price isn't getting hit. Yeah. Right. Well, look, and, and we're also seeing it in, in some of the tri-state area markets on the East Coast. And, and uh, Wells Fargo actually, and this was obviously in their, in their earnings report, characterized or qualified one of the, I think it was Greenwich as a distressed area. And one of the reasons for that is because of 
the tax changes. Right. And your house prices have already had already been falling there. Isn't Greenwich supposedly too having some of the biggest municipal municipal problems as well because of the flight of folks out of there, which are historically been the hedge fund, the upper yeah. kind of uh, wealthiness. Right? Yes, that that is happening given what's going on on Wall Street in quotes. But also, you know, look, there's an absence of foreign buyers now to support a lot of the really high end stuff. Chinese buyers are are not as prevalent in cash transactions as they used to be. And you can see that in the percentage of deals that are being done in cash. Brazilians, Russians, we can all see pretty clearly and easily why those three sort of foreign sets of buyers is is not coming into the market the way they used to. Yeah. I was uh, recently in Europe meeting with some folks and doing a roadshow for like a week and a half. And I was hearing about the prevalence of the Brazilians actually mm-hmm. coming to Spain, mm-hmm. right, too. And Spain, obviously Portugal as well with the the language. And so uh, just saying that, that there's a, they were telling me anecdotally that um, in Spain, huge bid from Mexican and Brazilians trying to get out right now too. That's very interesting. Yeah, just again, yeah. it doesn't really help us with the U.S. market here, but no. uh, yeah. All right. So Pete, what have we missed? I think we've covered the Fed, we've covered fiscal, we've covered spreads. Give us, give us some kind of bright spot if you yeah, see one. There we go. That, that's a challenge. Hey, this, the, when you showed up, the rain stopped here in LA. We had this like five-day rainy streak. So give us some sunshine. Opposites attract. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I, you know, I, I think there are, there are plenty of interesting things to do in markets now. They may not necessarily be a, a long investor's dream, but I think what we're in the midst of seeing, the bright spot to all this, the silver lining is that a cyclical correction in asset prices will create tremendous opportunities for those who understand how to value assets in a more traditional way. And I, I just think of like weak balance sheet, strong balance sheet. Like there's been no differentiation no, for like there five hasn't. years, right? There hasn't. And so these are the type of things you, you know, so even as a long only investor, hide in the higher quality, the stuff you understand, low leverage, yeah. you know, good cash businesses, those type of things. The way the way I like to say it to my team is, is you know, fundamentals are a whiteboard full of math and QE is the eraser. <laughs> so I like that. I like so that. I so yeah. I think, you know, one of the bright spots is is that we will start to those differentiating investment approaches will start to matter. In terms of the market them, markets themselves, I think there are some areas that, you know, I think energy. I think energy is oversold. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, one of the areas we were not correct on last year actually was oil. I did not think oil was going to collapse to $45 a barrel for various reasons. Of course, I could make excuses and say, well, there were geopolitical situations. There was a geopolitical there was a situation. There was that a big one that's no one can account for. Today of, of yeah. the peak in oil, there's a big geopolitical situation yeah. that happened. I, I, and st- I thought it was very strange that two sovereign entities really cranked up production shortly thereafter. You think uh, so? But again, these are just data points. I'm practically hugged it out at the G20 for that matter. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I think there is reason to say you didn't see that one coming because no one did. Uh, so I'll give you kudos there. Okay. Got to be well, a sycophant today. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I appreciate the excuse, but it, we were wrong. And, and look, but at $45 a barrel, it was clear that oil to me you know, was, was likely along. And even at, what are we, 52 or 53 today, uh, 54 on WTI, I, I, I think even with my view that global demand is going to be weak. Uh, I don't see a lot of downside to oil prices from here, given break-evens in the Permian and and the global supply-demand dynamic. And I think a lot of the large-cap energy companies are probably inexpensive to both oil and the fundamentals. And I think people are just scared of the volatility in oil markets, so they stay away. Well, it's it's nothing new there, right? Yeah. Uh, if you want to look at volatility, either trade trade EM local currency or just trade commodities. So, all right. Well, Pete, thanks for coming. 
But you know, before you go, we got to do Sam's favorite part of the show. So uh, Sam, will you remind Pete uh, the rules of the game? And the game is called Sherman Says. Pete, you're a veteran here, but uh, what I'll do is I will give a term. And in response, I would hope for a one to paragraph type answer is what I've come to expect in a terms one of to a, paragraph. You one, one, one word, word sorry, one word to a full paragraph type of a response from people it ranges anywhere in between there. Are your listeners aware that you actually have no, I have no clue what you're going to ask. Do they, oh, do right. they know that? They, so uh, I'm sure they're well aware. I believe of that. so. But further, they were talking about the words. They were trying to come up with some on the desk prior to you coming here, yeah, yeah. and like, don't show Sherman. He's looking. He's looking. <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't try to cheat either. Got it. Uh, you know, it's just it makes it more fun. It's right? a real secret. Yeah. 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 First one to Mr. Sherman: twin deficits, ugly. Although the trade deficit, since we're going to do a paragraph, the trade deficit did improve today. Ever so slight. For the first time since we've had tariffs, it actually did increase a little. All right. Mr. Cicchini. Neutral rate. A fiction. <laughs> Government <laughs> shutdown. Truth. <laughs> Combat your fiction. <laughs> Labor markets. A mess. Balance sheet. Important. Venezuela. A bigger mess. Eagle Ford. Earl. <laughs> That's my... That was my <laughs> trying to be a southern draw in oil. Not bad. <laughs> Modern monetary theory. MMT. Anachronistic. Tacos. Bueno. T-bone steak. My favorite. Dream vacation. <laughs> Any vacation you get. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't had one in a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Fed stopped meddling and everything. Yeah. Anyway, we'll stop there. Go ahead. Uh, one last one, and it's one I've been asking a lot lately. Childhood nickname. That's me? That's you. I'm afraid to ask Sherman, so... <laughs> with my it might not, I have we might, it might face compliance issues so well i had several but i'll give you the i'll give you the g-rated version peachy keen peach keeny peachy keen did you ever ever anything to those peachy folders too right you know do you remember those uh, did you have those no no you remember the peachy folders like the, no. the fold, they were like yellow talking oh, color or is there some kind of texture? no they had they had a fuzzy. symbol on it i can't remember they were like goldenrod color all right, I'll, we'll Google it after this. <laughs> Peachy folders. Trapper the, keepers. Yeah. Tra snapper crappers? Trapper, Trapper keepers. Keeper Trapper keepers. Okay, so watch, watch yourself. Okay, anyway, so thanks, Pete. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Listen to the inanity at the end. And uh, as always, you can uh, reach out to us at shermanshow at doubleline.com. It's all one word, shermanshow at doubleline.com for feedback. If you want to have Pete come back, let us know. Uh, again, we appreciate all of you listening. And again, thanks for your time today, Pete. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys. We'll catch fun. you guys in two weeks with the next episode of The Sherman Show.
The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.